Welcome back to another tonic discussion, everyone. Today we have Grant Smith, Mark Bazone, and John Carter. I'm Harrison Cayley, and today we're discussing an article that I found from John called Fail Better, Tacitus and the Art on Tacitus and Art on the Dissident Right. This is an article the Raw Egg Nationalist wrote for Asylum magazine. And starts out with a discussion of Tacitus or Tacitus, as some say, on his style, his style of history, basically his his Latin style, and comparing that to previous um, previous Latin prose like Cicero or Cicero and uh, Caesar, and how Tacitus kind of adopted a new style. And R E N or Ren, I'm not sure. John, what, what, what would be the pr proper pronunciation of uh, his acronym? <laughs> I usually just say Ren for Ryan okay, we'll, yeah. We'll call him Ren. So Ren kind of applies this to, to aesthetics and like the, the new art. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Most of the article is actually, I'd say, oh, well, is it most of it? Yeah, well, themed towards art, what the new art will look like and kind of why all art sucks today and how turning to the past, um, kind of a return to, to, to tradition, trying to write like a, you know, an epic poem in the, in the style of, um, you know, Dante or something like that isn't probably isn't going to work. And it, that's not how art works, that art builds on what has come, what has come before, builds on the current style. And so if there's ever going to be a, a good new art, um, it takes kind of a pessimistic view and says, it, it might not come around, it, we might not see it, but we should create the the conditions for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to um, to maybe create something great. The first thing I thought of when reading this article was, I mean, because off the, you know, on the heels of our last discussion on kind of Peter Turchin and, and that Palladium article on, on like competence, I was reading Turchin's new book, End Times, and there's an interesting section on that, in that on political systems and um, political cultures and their continuity. And so, well, I won't, I won't necessarily say anything about that right now, but we'll see how the discussion goes and maybe I'll come down to that, come back to that. But with that said, what were your guys, you know, initial impressions of this article? What kind of thoughts did it prompt in you? It's a little depressing to uh, consider the possibility that it is impossible under current historical circumstances to create great art, but it does seem it does seem pretty accurate, unfortunately. If I look back over the last couple of decades, I have a hard time pointing to very much that I would consider to be of superlative quality in, in literature or the visual arts or even in the characteristic art of the Western world, uh, cinema. Um, it's all been dominated by things that are quite derivative uh, in a particularly clumsy way of, of better things that came before. Um, certainly in, um, in science fiction, something that I know fairly well, uh, the last um, 
I mean, there's been a, a few good books published in the last you know, 20 years, but um, very little that was deeply original in the way that sort of the golden age science fiction was or the pulp age science fiction was. It's all kind of reaching back to that and trying to do it again. Uh, so that was do sort you think, of, you know, mm -hmm. How long, do you think that's just a recent thing, like the past 20 years? How far back do you think this this phenomenon I would, I would say so, actually. Um, I can think of all sorts of science fiction from the 1980s and 1990s that was highly original uh, and very readable. Um, that, you know, really just kind of set my imagination on fire in a way that the stuff that's, that's come out uh, since then hasn't. And I think you see something similar with music. Um, it's really hard to point to any artists of the last 20 years that have the same stature as the artists of the 1960s or 70s, um, certainly with the classical composers of the past. Uh, so, um, you know, but partly, you know, that could just be the, the takeover of entertainment by conglomerates. Partly it could be the influence of the internet and kind of fracturing society into a million different little echo chambers. Um, it's, uh, but, you know, Ren kind of, you know, points to, the point, points to just at, at a sort of structural level that we don't have the education now to produce really high quality art. You know, if you read literature from the 19th century, I mean, those guys were so incredibly well-educated. Their sentence structure alone was far more intricate than anything you tend to find now. Uh, they would, you know, throw out um, things in German or French or Latin or Greek and just expect that their readers would be able to read it would get these obscure references to classical history or what have you. Uh, and these are things that you just cannot do now. Um, you know, the writers don't even have that preparation. And even if they did, you cannot assume that the readers do either. You know, we've been dumbed down so much that uh, producing something really deep and meaningful and broad is um, it's hard to see exactly how that would happen. Even if it did happen, how it would get a new sort of audience. So uh, that, was, that was kind of like the, the, I think the sort of depressing thrust of what he said, but he also, you know, I think a little bit more optimistically, you know, he was, he was getting at the point that um, rather than trying to just redo badly what was done better in the past, we should try to do well what we can do now in a style that fits the current age, hence this comparison of Tacitus to uh, Julius Caesar or Cicero. Uh, um, and that by doing that, we can take what is valuable from the past, wrap it up in uh, sort of new packaging that fits the present and, and as a kind of protective shell almost and pass that on to the future, uh, laying the seeds for hopefully something great that will come about in, you know, a few generations, if we're lucky. Mm -hmm. One of the, one, well, yeah, one thing that stood I mean, out, like, okay. no, go ahead, Mark. No, I mean, like, um, well, if you're going to riff off of that, go right ahead, Harrison, because I have my own sort of thing no. to say. No, okay. No, go ahead. So, yeah, so like, as you guys know from private, um, discussion like I 
I struggled with this one a bit. Um, and I think, you know, I reread it. And part of the reason I think I was struggling is because I'm not really familiar with Ren's work. And maybe I was supposed to assume from past readings is what I felt was that um, that he already had sort of qualifications for greatness, the greatness of art, and, and particularly the greatness of the storytelling art um, that we were to assume going in. But in the article itself, he, it lacks, in my opinion, it just lacks the, either the examples or the even the counter examples that, that I would need in order to fully assess what he was saying. Um, so I think that, you know, and as you know, like this is something that's been on my mind. If you read um, Black Speech, for example, um, language development, artistic language development is something that's um, kind of near and dear to me. And so I guess the first thing that I thought after the second read was about the art of storytelling itself, um, meaning, you know, all myths, legends, histories, poems, plays, literature, you know, even films, basically, basically every construction of words meant to convey a string of events um, with a beginning and an end. And then after that, I thought, okay, so that's a story. What makes a story great? And what I thought about was that there really is only one true story. Um, with a bunch of warning labels tacked onto it. Uh, in other words, I think Campbell had it mostly right in that the one true story always begins with a call to adventure. And then it ends in one of two ways. You know, sometimes the artist warnings labels, they overwhelm the story, in which case we get a tragedy, uh, you know, kind of one big fat warning label at the end, you could say. Uh, and in other cases, the other case is we get a master of two worlds, meaning the material and the spiritual. Everything else is just a bunch of time-wasting crap, like soap operas and, you know, propaganda and whatnot. You know, stuff that's shaped like a story, but really isn't when you peel back the curtain a little bit. And so with that in mind, I think the artist's job is prim primarily to tell the one true story in his own unique voice and style. And particularly, you know, in the design and construction of all those warning labels, these would be, you know, the monsters and the traps and all of the other challenges that get in the way of the story's natural conclusion, which again is either tragedy or master of two worlds, you know, and, and by reading those stories and even in writing them, I think it makes us think about, well, how would we overcome similar challenges in the stories of our own lives? Um, you know, and then in the case of tragedy, I think the focus is more on, well, how might we fail? And what's what's the cost of those failures? Um, and so, you know, but what I've wondered, I, I'm wondering lately, if tragedy, you know, meaning that ultimate label of total ruin, isn't by nature inferior to the master of two worlds endings, just naturally inferior, like, like, I've always thought of Moby Dick as one of the greatest novels I've ever read. And, and you could argue that it more or less follows the hero's journey template and even has elements of the classic hero uh, in Queequeg, for example. But ultimately, you know, at the end of that novel, Ishmael's rescue from the sea just leaves him a survivor of, of ruin, of tragedy, not a master of worlds. In the end, he's rescued, if you think about it, he's rescued by what? By a combination of an accident the monster wrecking, you know, toppling him off the ship, 
a dead man, you know, Queequeg's coffin, and a princess comes and rescues him. Ultimately, he's no hero at all. He's basically a spectator in his own life story. You know, it's the pessimism of a heroic and adventurous world that's been lost to what Melville saw as the smallness of modernity in many ways. You know, and, and but the question is, is it still a great story? I, I think it is, but is it greater than the Odyssey? You know, is it greater than the labors of Hercules? Uh, is it greater than Arthurian legend? I think, I, I don't know if you guys read Duncan Rayburn's article recently. I think he showed us that impaled in comparison, even as, even as something like the tale of the white stag. And so, you know, with all this mind, again, one of the struggles I had was I came away not really knowing what what Rem thought about all of this. Like, was any of that great art? Would he consider, um, is, would he consider those great stories? And, you know, and, well, I and think would he consider I, I, the template, you know? Yeah, I think ahead, you John. can get some idea um, from the examples that he used. None of them were actually storytellers in the sense of, of um, you know, mythologists. Uh, right. You know, they were all, all statesmen and historians. Um, right, correct. And then you're yeah. mixing that with art. Like, I think an art is like what is achieved, I think, by, again, not, not copying the style, um, but like following the structure. You know, I think when I read it, like I said, okay, let me think of an example from history that Ren might agree was the proper way to go about it. You know what I came up with? Dracula. In other words, we could make inferior art, which I think Dracula is an inferior, inferior to Melville. You know, Stoker is inferior, but we could make inferior I art. Couldn't fin what? I couldn't finish Dracula. I, I tried reading it when I was a teenager and I got really bored. Well, here's the thing, like, but Dracula has like some qualities of it that I think Ren was talking about, which is that like Stoker was trying to use the language of the times in order to create one giant warning label about, you know, with the attacked on bit of like hope at the end that evil can be defeated. But he was using the lingua franca of the times. He was using like um, all of the symbols, all of the imagery, all of like the sort of the modern bits and pieces that like were stylized in the way that people actually speak, spoke and, and, and acted and the, the things that they did. It was a modern novel in its time. Um, and so maybe he's saying that, like maybe he's saying the best we can do is like uh, is is make a Dracula, make a big warning label, so that future generations will be able to go back and say, ah, that's how they get it wrong. Um, but like, I'm wondering if you know, and I agree, I agree, we shouldn't be larping, you know, we shouldn't. But but at the same time, I see value in something like a Renaissance fair, you know, maybe not a lot of value, but but some. I I mean, I think part of the reason that we should preserve certain old traditions is, you know, if we are indeed doomed for total collapse. We're gonna have to ask some folks who know how to do all this stuff most of us take for granted. You know, guy, I was thinking about it, I was like guys like Hunter Duncan and Doc Hammer and Grant would be way more useful in some sort of Mad Max apocalypse type situation than me. At least, at least in the material sense of surviving and rebuilding the world from scratch. You know, I guess at best I might be useful in, I don't know, helping to rig up a basic comms network. But, but how long would it be before we'd even get back to that stage? You know, we might be bow hunting and subsistence farming for decades before that happens. 
But I think also just to loop in the story factor, I think part of that rebuilding effort will, will also include people who know how to tell the one true story and make great art from it. Like that's particularly the case when it comes to, let's say something like repopulating the world. Because, you know, the death of romance and romantic art is the death of love, the death of sex, the death of families, the death of the world eventually. And so that storytelling capacity is very important, but what kind of stories will we tell? You know, it's sort of like, will we tell the story of tragedy? I think, see, I think tragedy is more the type of story we tell when times are good, when, when nothing much is on the line, when times are stable. Would you use that language to describe our world? Maybe we should be telling heroic tales. You know, maybe we should be telling tales of, of, of heroes slaying dragons and rescuing princesses. Like, well, this is, this, is, this is why I, I mean, as a teenager, you know, almost throughout my life, I, I, I've never read Moby Dick, for instance. Um, and part of that is, you know, every exposure that I've had to modernist literature, I just found it left a very bad taste in my mouth. I didn't find it particularly engaging. Um, and I always gravitated much more towards genre fiction. Uh, you know, I would argue that the great literary epic of the 20th century is Lord of the Rings. I don't think that has been surpassed uh, 100%. since it was written. And I, I can't think of anything written before the Lord of the Rings in the 20th century that was its evil. Um, now, could, I mean, it's, it's, it's genre, not just genre defining, it didn't just spawn the entire fantasy genre as it's currently understood. Um, in many ways, it's era defined. Could something like that be written today? I'm not so sure it could be. I don't think, you know, think of the kind of man that Tolkien was. You know, steeped in these ancient traditions and myths, you know, an absolute master of, you know, all of folk tales and linguistics and philology. Um, and, you know, with a, a deep and abiding Catholic faith, there are, I think, many who are inspired by his example who, who would love to try to live up to that. But I don't think there's anyone who does. Um, and furthermore, you know, he had that protection, that stability of, of being a university professor at uh, Oxford, I think, or Cambridge. Um, I always get the two mixed up. Uh, someone like that would not become a professor, <laughs> you know, like you wouldn't have that, um, that leisure that is necessary to just kind of potter around for his entire life, gradually putting together all of the material necessary in order to produce four books, I guess five if you count similarly, you know, like, but really just four actual uh, novels. Um, which is an incredibly, you know, in terms of like uh, quantity of output, that's not prolific at all, right? But in terms of quality, it's off the charts. But, you know, now, like if you want to make your living uh, as a man of letters, like you got to hustle, you know, you're self-publishing on Amazon, you're trying to like pump out something like every three months, uh, you don't have time to edit it properly, like let alone like sit there and like really deeply like, you know, ruminate over everything and like think through all the details and and like really polish it and, and let it really flourish in your mind. Um, like it's just not possible. It's, the world's too busy now. is the other problem that I had with this article. Like this talk of what's possible and impossible bothers me a bit. 
we, we, we use, we sling those words around so casually. And I'm like the hubris of that. Like, it's sort of like, what's possible? What's possible is I could hit the lotto tomorrow. Well, I don't play lotto, but what's possible is that any one of us could strike it rich at some moment and have exactly that leisure. And that could happen anywhere in the world. You know, the world's a very big place. So I think it's, that's the core pessimism that I didn't like, this idea that it's impossible. And it's, it's kind of like, we already have the template, you know, uh, as great as Tolkien was, he, he borrowed the template because the template is the one true story. He just had the greatness of style, the greatness of his, his artistic voice. And like you said, he also had that wealth of knowledge to draw upon, but to say well, there's that, also well, so like great yeah. greatness right like you know this touches back to an earlier discussion we had about the concept of honor um which is which is uh partially connected to sort of uh recognition um being seen as being honorable right getting getting credit for the things that you have done uh say tolkien had written the lord of the rings of the hobbit and you know, it had never been noticed. You know, he published it, no one bought it. It just kind of sank with sank into obscurity without um, having made any mark on the culture. Exactly the same books, right? Um, now, would we would it still be great literature? I mean, like objectively, it's the, the same literature, but it wouldn't have had any impact on the culture. So you, I don't well, think you could, you couldn't hold it up as great literature. It's part of, you know, great literature, part of great art. Is it's not just the quality of the art; it's also the fact that it is recognized as such. And one of the things that militates against uh, great art being possible right now is, is also the fact that the culture, the wider culture itself, is so debased. That, um, you know, how much of an audience is there for that, really? Uh, you might have the whole few, world. In, you might the have whole a few, world through. You might have but a few the, internet, the internet, John. The internet. A few internet artists, yes. Um, and like, sure. I mean, like, so like, you take music as an example. I can find all sorts of amazing music. It's kind of last twenty years. Stuff that really moves me that I, I really can really get into. And it, it, but it, it, it's sort of confined to. It's all confined to these like little subcultural niches, it has no impact on the wider culture at all, right? And in a sense, that's fine, you know? Like if you want it, it's there, you can access it, you can participate in that and you can enjoy it, you can fill your life with that. And that is in a sense enough. Um, and certainly from the point of view of the artist in terms of making a living like that can easily be enough, right? Like you have the whole internet, you know, to, to, to sell your stuff to people. Um, but is it going to change the direction of the culture in any measurable way? And the answer is almost certainly it will not. Um, and will it be remembered in 50 or 100 years as great art? Like, again, probably not because it just, it didn't get that wide adoption and recognition. So yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, okay, so, all right. So, so here's, a, here's a bestseller for you. It's called the Gospels, right? And this happened before the printing press. This happened before 
the internet, for TikTok, for any of these democratized or pseudo-democratized global platforms have. And the story that they tell is the one true story, right? The story that they tell is, is the story of the hero's journey. So, and, and this is where Tolkien comes in and his success, because I do believe his success, yes, part of it was his leisure. Part of it was that he had people around him, editors, publishers, people that believed in it. And I think all of that machinery is important, but I also think that the best stories find a way to tell themselves. So like if I tried to summarize my belief in Christianity, it would be that I believe Jesus Christ was the manifestation of the one true story in the flesh. In other words, he was simultaneously all hero, all story, all storyteller, and all artist, with basically no warning labels attached to that story. You know, for instance, we don't, we don't really get to see what happens during the span of life before he was refu when he was refusing the call to adventure. Everything that happened up until his baptism in the woods, essentially. It's all blanked out. We have no idea. And during it, you know, he was this artist. Just, like, just, to, interject, I mean, just to interject, I'm, I'm pretty sure some of the yeah. Gnostic Gospels actually do, and like the Apocrypha actually do discuss, like, the events of his, you know, the prequels. They yeah. do. They do. They're contentious. But I'm saying that even stripped of that, that's true. And like also discussing, for instance, like what, okay, the devil tempted him in the woods for, uh, you know, 40 days. Like what, what were those temptations? We're not told. And you're right. There are some sources that tell them. But like, I guess my point is that the entire story, even if you, and if we do accept that, it is a complete story, complete with warning labels and all. But during it, during the part, the adventurous part of it, let's say, uh, Jesus was an artist who was, you know, he was mostly just dishing out the warning labels himself directly through his own stories. You know, instead of constantly illustrating them through a bunch of action movie bullshit. Like, like in any case, I think he was trying to show us that God himself was a storyteller and an artist. And at the same time, art. So when Jesus is casting out demons and healing lepers and whatnot, that wasn't what the story was about. Because Jesus never had any problem with doing that. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a challenge for him. He was able to do those things with his voice and authority alone. In other words, he could speak the story directly into existence, just like a, an author can do on the page. And so like, in, in other words, so that story, which is the fundamental structure, I think, revealed um, in its most absolute manifest manifestation of form, that story has continued on and, and again, like was able to spread around itself without any of the university systems or the publishing industry or, you know, yes, it needed champions. All stories need champions. But I'm saying that like to say it's impossible for the greatness of that fundamental story to just kind of rear its head all of a sudden out of nowhere and spawn itself around the Internet. I think I think it's a little it's a little too pessimistic is all I'm saying. Yeah, I, it came across as too pessimistic to me. Um, then again, I have my own conception of what's going on. I don't think that, you know, John talked a little bit about how there's no monoculture anymore, but that's that's not a consequence of things sucking as much as it is just evolution of uh, information technology. So what I, I think it's all, I think the reason that things seem like they suck so bad is because a lot of the stuff that's force fed us in the artificial monoculture is propaganda. And 
I think a lot of the stuff that people are making independently of that, that are outside of that vast censorship, state funded and influenced media apparatus is really good. Um, it's just not as easy to find. And then you don't get that same monoculture effect where everybody's talking about and it's having an influence on a monoculture. But if you just look at it in terms of sheer numbers, comparing now versus, you know, 10,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago, I mean, we have subcultures that share a lot of priors that consume similar content that you know, have larger numbers than the entire world did at, at points in, in our history. So I'm with Mark. I think that really excellent art could, could turn up at any time, anywhere. And I'm really inclined to believe that because I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm less, like, I get this feeling from from folks that are really, I don't know, I, I get the sense that they fetishize the classics a little bit. And maybe that's just me being uncultured, uh, feeling that way. But I feel like it's pretentious bullshit. You know, I look at art and if I like it and it's like sick, I, I just love it. I don't, I don't care. I don't overanalyze it. And, you know, to me, it's like you mentioned Lord of the Rings. It's just sick. It's an it's a awesome story. It's so deep on every level. It's satisfying and uh, inspirational, and all these things. And uh, I think another piece of it is art's a two way street. It's the observer, you know, it's who's consuming it and being exposed to it, in addition to the artist. And we have an ability to manage our expectations accordingly. Like that's it's a two way street for responsibility. So, you know, it's like, I think John mentioned they would throw in uh, obscure references in the past and expect the reader to know it. Less of that's going to happen now. And that detracts from the depth of stories that can be told because, you know, you can't just reference something and, and expect that somebody's going to know all the background. But at the same time, as an observer, you can acknowledge that and, and enjoy what's available for what it is it, instead of expecting or wanting uh or, or fetishizing greatness i don't know i just i i think something i think it's art's subjective um like your enjoyment of it is highly subjective and there are commonalities between us because of nature and um you know, we're all human beings and there's a lot of commonalities and I believe in archetypes and all that. But at the end of the day, if you think something's great and it inspires you, then uh, I don't give a shit what somebody else says about it. And I think the reason things seem so bleak is because of propaganda. And I think modern art, I feel like modern art is propaganda. I think it's related to what we talked about last time in the confidence crisis. I think it's all related. I think we're having something systematically put in front of us that just sucks really bad. And it's anchoring, um, anchoring our expectations. But I, I like, especially for writing a book, you know, we, everybody has access to 
all of the literature you know everybody has access like and there's nobody can censor what somebody writes in a book right for like large-scale media that has a lot of monetary inputs um that's that's harder to get a project like that off the ground and there's there's economic reasons that all that stuff's very derivative but in terms of just creating your own story i i think there's tremendous potential that we're going to see awesome stories so, so I think um, something was just I just I was just thinking as you were, you were saying this of uh, Johann Kurtz's piece this week about liturgy um, and uh, as like the, the the work of the people it's something that kind of binds binds you to your culture in in sort of time and space. Um, I think when you're partaking of, of the classics, um, of, of great art in the sense of art that has been recognized through time as great, it's not just that you're, you have that subjective appreciation of it, although that's certainly an element. There's also this sense of, that you are partaking in something that m- many others have also partaken in. It's a kind of communion. Uh, and as you were saying, the propaganda aspect of what's being put in front of us from the kind of organs of official culture is reliably shit. And I think that is actually the core of the problem more than anything. You know, if I go, if I go into a bookstore, I used to, you know, just 20 years ago, I could go into a bookstore and I would spend an hour looking in the shelves and you know, be unable to decide between like, you know, 50 different books that I wanted to buy because I could only, I only had money for one. Now I go in there, I spend an hour and I can't find one that I actually want to read because um, they're just, they're just all shit. It's all propaganda. It's all just empty and hollow. And the same with the movies and the theater, right? You know, when we were kids, be like, oh, I want to see this and I want to see that and I want to see this. Now it's like, ah, is there anything worth watching, you know? And it's just, so that gives the impression that there's no good art. But I think- this is, Some of it's an illusion because there's so much, there's a blizzard of bad art. There's, a there's blizzard. so much more media to dig through. For yeah, 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 yeah. Right, you know? right, 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 right. There's a huge amount, of it, right? Um, and there's also a huge amount of really good stuff. The problem, I mean, the problem has always been that there's more shit than there is good stuff, right? Like that's never not been the case. Um, but that's why you we had that's why we developed gatekeeping uh, mechanisms, you know, tastemakers and editors and publishers and such, who um, their job was to kind of comb through all the crap and like find a few gems and sort of like hold them up to everyone and be like, here, this, this is really good. And like, cause people like, you know, they had a good reputation, people trusted, you know, their, their taste. Um, they became, they had, you know, certain ability as kingmakers in that regard. And these right. curator, you're talking about curators and patrons, which kind of thing, historically, right, exactly. Yeah. Right. That, that and, like we have, yeah. and we have, and we, and, and, you know, if you, so if you look at like movies, right. Um, movies are, are part of anime. Anime is a great example of this. So I said almost every anime that gets made starts out as a manga, right? And there's way more manga than there is anime. 
and if something really takes off as a manga, then one of the studios picks it up and like turns it into a movie, right? Um, and you know, sort of similarly with a lot of movies, it's like you know you have a huge number of writers out there and they're, they're churning at all this stuff and then you know some of them some small number of them get picked up by a major publishing house and of those some of them will have like a bestseller people really like it we do really well and then of those some of them will get picked up by uh, a major movie studio and you know they make a blockbuster movie and you know millions and millions of people watch the movie and like way more people see the movie than read the book um maybe some people read the book because they because they watch the movie right that's how it's kind of supposed to work, that you have this kind of funneling effect where you sort of like, you, you're generating all of this raw culture and then kind of like you, you sort of pick up the good stuff and you sort of funnel it together and you hold that in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And this kind of creates this, this shared sense of what's good. And the problem we have now, what I'm getting at, the problem we have now is that this has been corrupted. That the people who have been running these you know movie studios and publishing houses and, and so on like they're all political they all yeah. like right and like it's been more we, it's been more than corrupted it's been weaponized so yeah, it, yeah exactly but all right. these all these things that you mentioned they they grew organically mm -hmm. and you know they had mm -hmm. power to do something because they were serving a, a legitimate purpose and that purpose there's market demand for that function. And so the fact that it's been weaponized, you know, it's totally lost its market function, its whole purpose, its whole telos. And the mm -hmm. first wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can I push back against some of this with a story? Okay. Course, because Mark. like I I agree. I agree <laughs> though. I, I, I I'm sorry, but I agree hey. with what you guys are saying to a to a point. But I think we're missing mechanisms that are developing. In other words, I think that old model is dying. The old model of curation and the grand patron, we are all seeing that it's dying, right? Even the publishing industry is dying. Everything is dying. You know what's not dying? Crowdsourcing. So there's a guy. Have you guys ever heard of a guy named Young Rippa? Yeah, it's Eric, Eric July. July. Eric July. Okay, so Eric July. Here's the story of Eric July. Eric July is a black American comic book nerd. Eric July is anti-woke. Eric July started a YouTube channel that now has over half a million this subscribers is like to it. Ascendant or something like that. This is it's it, Isom. Yeah. Isom. Isom. No, no, no. Is no, the no, name but, of his uh, his grant. No, but he, he not not his YouTube channel, but he came up with like a superhero universe or something and got like a huge amount yeah, of Isom. support for it. It's called okay. it's called the Ripiverse. And like he's only done what he's just on his second earliest. Right. And so here's what happened with Eric July. Eric July was, you know, bitching and moaning about the destruction, just like we all are, of art into the its deracination into propaganda, the fact that it had been weaponized, the fact that all of the routes, the traditional routes to publishing had been cut off. So you know what he did? He said, fuck it, I'm gonna publish my own thing. And you're gonna fund it. He asked his his all of his the audience that he had built he built up spent years building up who trusted him because they knew that he was against all of these things and you know what he got he got like three million dollars out of it out of one crowdsourced campaign okay that's the power that's at everybody's fingertips and I think we when we dwell on like everything that's being lost and this this links back into the article 
Because he's right, some things are lost, but other things can be gained if we have the senses to kind of look at the world as it is. Again, not as it was and not as we wish it was, but if we look at the instruments that are available to us, I think that actually we are in a great position to be able to tell great stories, to be able to great, make great art, because we can get audiences. We could get go direct in ways that we never could. A lot of those gatekeepers, guess what? Like, John, when you were saying that, like, how much was left on the cutting room floor? What if, what if Lord of the Rings had never attracted any eyeballs because some gatekeepers kept them out? Well, we don't oh, have that. Problem oh, believe, anymore. believe me. I, I, I know. And I'd be the first to, you know, sort of bemoan the tendency, for instance, you know, the big studios to make some incredibly boneheaded decisions in terms of like what to make, what not to make and what changes to introduce, you know, a lot of scripts have been ruined by the producer, uh, you know, sticking his fingers in, for instance. Um, so, I mean, like the, the, that system never worked perfectly. Um, it did serve- How we can as, sidestep it. And, it, and this, the same thing was certainly true of publishing houses. Like that, that never worked perfectly. Right. Like there'd always be like some some writers who were actually really good who like, you know, uh, we keep getting rejected by publishers. Uh, and you're right. We can sidestep it entirely. It creates a different problem from the point of view of the reader, though. So rather than having to choose between a large between a relatively small amount of curated content, which is of fairly decent quality overall because of that curation, you now have this absolute flood of stuff, some of which is really good, a lot of which is garbage. And, you know, then, of course, there's the AI question, like, what's that going to do, right? Because you know, you know that there are already books on Amazon written entirely by AI. Mark, and they're all boring. I'm sure. I'm sure they're Mark. shit, right? I'm sure they're shit. But from the point of view, from the point of view of of the reader, right, um, or or the consumer of art, like you're put in this position of, uh, you know, how do you choose what to put your time into reading or consuming, right? Like, not even forget about money. That's actually not even really the issue for most people. The limited, the really limited qualities, quantity, uh, really limited things, time. And yeah, for now. <laughs> well, <laughs> but so Mark, Mark, like that's not pushback, Mark. That's what we're both. That's what we're both getting at. I mean, John has a weekly list of articles that he curates. For God's sakes, like he's he's doing it already and so do and so do you with with trying to consolidate information that's on the demo station slack my, like my point is that the market demand for this service is not being met and so you know that's what get, i was getting it's at. Get that's exactly around. what i was getting at thank you it's gonna exactly get routed around it's, it's already getting routed around the the decrepit system that's been weaponized is not serving the function that people have a deep intrinsic desire for it to serve and so it's going to get routed around it's going to fail it's in the process of failing that's what's in the process of failing society is not necessarily going to collapse that might be why it seems like it is and as soon as it gets routed around um then i think we're going to be in a much better space i don't think that it's Hi. really as dire as uh as ren 
suggest. Well, no, it's, okay, it's like got, it was, it's like it's like we hold all the cards and we don't know it. Go ahead, Harris. So a couple things. One, I'll just throw this out there as a possibility because when I was when I was reading Ren's article, I didn't like it didn't seem as pessimistic to me. I saw it more as a, a work of rhetoric with the purpose of inspiring, um, inspiring like dissident artists to try new things. I saw it as basically saying, don't just try to repeat the style of the past. Don't just like reject the modern like vernacular simply because it's, it's modern and don't just try to, you know, write a new you know greek myth in the style of the greeks or don't try to write a you know a tolkien in the style of tolkien but you have to live you have to you have to adopt the environment that you're in and create something within it and by saying so he's being so it's the article saying fail better so you're, you're probably not going to create a masterpiece but you should be trying and i i think i almost saw the pessimism as a as a spur to to new creations that will be interesting and not just not just rehashes of you know Robert Howard or something like that. Like, don't just try to don't just try to create something that's already been done. Actually, so this is I saw it more as a call to the to the actual creators out there who are making things to okay, try doing your own thing, and uh, and it might it it might not you know, it might be a hundred years before anything great is created, but try anyways. It's like, well, that doesn't necessarily have to be true, but for someone to think that, okay, well, maybe it, it kind of takes the pressure off. Well, I don't have to create something, you know, maybe my grandkids w will, but it doesn't mean it's not going to be created. It doesn't mean it's impossible. Like I just, I just searched the article and the only time he says impossible is in a different context entirely. Like, uh, I, I, well, I don't know. I, I don't know the guy. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, maybe if if we talked to him or interviewed him sometime, he would be a total pessimist. But I have I have the the feeling that that he'd probably agree with a lot of the things that that you guys were saying. In that, it's not impossible in principle. It's just here are all the difficulties surrounding it. But but um, I, I think one of the things that that's also come up in in the discussion is the importance of the audience as as the new curator. This kind of crowdsourcing the the curation is that it's it's our or it's it's the it's the audience like us or it's the just the audience in general it's their role to say no all of this stuff is shit and we're just going to ignore it and we're going to forget about it and in 20 years no one is going to remember the you know 95 percent of the you know the, the crap that's put out by major studios because they're only going to remember the stuff they like so and and again like you guys have mentioned Every year, even though most stuff is crap, every year there's a there's a f at least a few good movies that come out that will probably be remembered for, you know, for decades, generations probably. That those will just be the only ones that are remembered because all the other stuff was such crap. So I think that it's kind of the, it's kind of our role if we're not those people actually cr creating this type of uh, this type of art to support the stuff that we find and be like, okay, well, this is the new canon. You know, this is the stuff that people have to pay attention to and to kind of keep it alive. Because John, like you said, like studios have, have interfered and, and ruined a lot of good things. And ironically, a lot of those things that they ruined are, or that, or that weren't popular at the time are the things that are now popular and the things that are now remembered and now, now remembered as classics, the kind of underground classics that were never, 
never popular at the time, but now they're the, the things that everyone remembers. So I, th I think that's kind of the, the audience's role in all of this is to, is, is to, to act as, to act as that curator now to be like, no. <laughs> and you see this on YouTube, for instance, with guys like critical drinker who are like, okay, no, all this stuff sucks. Oh, but here, here are the three movies that came out this year that are actually really decent and that you, you'll probably enjoy. And then you look on Rotten Tomatoes, those are the ones with like 95, 99% audience scores. And those are the ones that I think people are actually watching and enjoying. And, you know, those are the ones that will then create the, um, like, those are the things that people are, are watching and reading today that will influence the, the new things that, that might be underground. Because it, it is hard to get like, uh, th there's only so much good, like, let's say TV or movie, you know, film material that can be made because of the studios. And there's certain things you, you can't say certain, certain, certain things you have to do, but every once in a while there, there's something that kind of breaks through. It's like, I mean, look at the, the Northman, like Robert Eggers, the, the film, the, the filmmaker, the guy that made it. I mean, he's, he's pretty like typical, a typical kind of left coast. I'd say, well, he's not from the left coast, like the, the West coast, but he's a, uh, He's a typical artist mentality, but because he's a stickler for historical accuracy, you don't have any race swapping in there. You don't like, he's like, I just want to make a, an accurate Viking movie. It's and, shocking that that movie was made in the current year. Great. great right. Film. But, but it, but it got made, right? Yeah. That's a really it got, good It got point, made man. because I'm, he had, I'm, he had so much success. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you like, you try to like, you know, uh, uh, swing the conversation like back around to the stylistic issue. Um, cause I, I do think that was sort of the really, the, the core point that Ren was trying to draw, drive home for the audience there was that we, we kind of need a new style. We need something that matches the time in which we live. Right. And he wasn't trying to define what that style is, that there would be a, a huge amount of hubris involved in doing that. Um, as I, I'm sure he would be the first to agree, but more to kind of like, you know, put that that out there for people to kind of consider and then you know see what bubbles up from the culture as a result of that because this, this does have ha kind of have to happen organically um yeah, you look at, I, I, too. I, think, I mean like and i i think there's a i think there's a, a pretty good chance i don't know i mean when i was when i was reading it what what i started think, thinking about first thing I thought about was kind of like, you know, what's what's happening in the kind of weird corners and substack um, where people are starting to in, be a little bit more experimental in in how they compose things, right? They're not just doing like listicles or or academic writing or, you know, trying to be all you know, like pompous and, and serious and, and such. And some people are, 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 are doing that, you know, it's fine. Um, and then others are, are really having fun with, it. you know, you look at someone like Elgato Mallow, for instance, and he's just like, he's absurd, but also really on point. Uh, or, uh, or Eugippius, who is, you know, just like a really impressive prose stylist who is able to make like very cogent points, but, you know, phrased in this, in this fashion that kind of like veers between um, sort of like, you know, internet speech and like, you know, really high level intellectualization. 
Uh, and I, I think, you know, or, the people or Mark Brazon, who or Mark Brazon, who or Mark Brazon, who, who, who proved that chat GPT can't still a, tell a fucking story about a banjo, man. Well, actually, I mean, Mark, like your 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 style, I find very. I'm regardless. kidding. Just, I'm like, kidding. You know that you, but you do. You get you kind of like you'll sort of like weave together like you know like fiction and like philosophy in this kind of like way that I, I very rarely find. You know, and it's it's very fresh and, and engaging. Um, well, thank you. Is that what the new style is going to be? Like, I don't know, right? Like, because it's it, it is this kind of experimental thing, and you have like all of these writers, kind of like you know, kind of like doing their own thing, and, and or, sort of or zero off each HP other. zero HP Lovecraft. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Who, no. Who's it, reaching in back the, into the past and at the same time like doing something new? In the in the group chat, you were you were like, oh God, is it just going to be people like talking in emojis? Like, I don't know if you read. <laughs> his, did you read a story? Uh, uh, don't tell me what to think. Oh yes, yes. yes. <laughs> God damn! I was uh, assaulted by it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so it was. It was like it was like wading through Tumblr, man. It was so bad. <laughs> it was really good. But like, ow, ow. <laughs> yeah, it was also Harrison, a retelling of a story. Mm. Harrison's point that. Uh, you know, if, if you look at it from the, the perspective that it was rhetoric trying to inspire a new wave of artists, like it's, you know, it's pretty brilliant. Um, I, I didn't look at it like that, but in retrospect, uh, you know, the, the encouragement to try new things, but then also to manage expectations at the same time and take the pressure off. I think that that's the magical combination that's needed. So you know, perhaps that's exactly where he was coming from. And in that case, it's, you know, yeah, it's just a really good point, Harrison. Well, just yeah, one actually, more thing. Harrison, on that. I, oh. just, just one more thing really quick. I kind of saw it as when you have a, a movement and like Ren is kind of like a, a big figure in, in, a, in a movement or in a, in a certain sphere, right? And when when someone like that sees something that they don't like, I mean, I saw this as a as a kind of like gentle correction, like, hey, I, I like all you guys, but you got to stop just LARPing, essentially, just kind of like trying to recreate stuff that's already already been done. Kind of like, I, I found it as a, I, I kind of found it like to be a, a tactful way of saying, stop doing this, you guys, essentially. But go on, go on, Mark. No, I was going to say, Harrison, the other thing that you um, that you came up with, which I think was missing from the paradigm of sort of curator and patron, right? But there's another character that's missing, and you you clearly defined it as the critic, which is neither nor, but something that like people grasp onto. They say, I trust a critic. Like there's a the great the great ending of sorry to spoil a 30 year old movie, but or, or however long it is, uh, the end of Ratatouille, where Anton Ego kind of describes the um, the critic's role as being a defender of the new. And I think that that's something like that. Like, and it's also, you know, if we talk about critical drinker or the whole YouTuber, there's a whole ecosystem there of like people that are aggressive critics that dig through all of this trash to find, to try to find gems. But along the way, they're, they're important in that they're calling out what is trash and why it's trash. And that's also an important function. They're kind of like an anti-patron in that way. Um, and I think that in a time, in a, in, a, in a media situation in which we live in, which is a blizzard 
of endless content coming from every possible source. What they're doing, I think, is refining a taste and a palate. And I think the taste and palate is important. And to what Grant was saying, it's important because it's sort of like, yeah, I agree with Grant to some degree. It's just sort of like, yeah, I don't know what I don't know art, but I know what I like. Like I'm 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 also simple in that way. I'm I, I'm not addicted to the past or anything. I didn't have a classical education. I had an imperial one, which meant I was essentially uh, trained in prison habits, right? I did not have, like, I did not attend Oxford. I didn't have any of, you know, what I know I kind of taught myself. And so I'm in the same boat where I'm just sort of like, I don't give a fuck, like, where this came from. I don't care, like, like oh, do, do you not recognize the architecture of this ancient myth within this story? It's sort of like, no, I recognize, I recognize the warning labels because of my experience of reality and also somewhat because of what I read, but more so, like, like, if we're going to create this great art of the future, and I think that we have to, and I think it's going to have to be heroic, and I think that at the end of it, it doesn't need to be, it, it can't be tragedy, but must end in that hero of two worlds, in the, you know, like, even the story of Jesus Christ, like, ends in the correct way, which is says that I can stand in heaven and on earth, and I can be, and you walk in both worlds. Like, as long as that's the template, we could have a million Lord of the Rings that spring out of that, for all we know. Probably not. Probably not because of parietal curves and that excellence does not present itself at a wide level. We all know that. You know, otherwise it wouldn't be excellence and we'd all be Marxist and retarded. But like, but like the fact of the matter is, is that it can spring from somewhere. Like I and, and I think that to some degree, and this is just me and my business, but I actually think that to a degree, certain patterns including patterns of stories, find a way to emerge through some mechanism that I can't understand and that a lot of people pretend with a lot of jargon they can understand, but which we might as well call fate or destiny or something like that. And, and, and all of these great works that I think that, that Ren is pointing back to, I think they contain an element of those things. Like part of what's been lost is the spiritual. I think, I think even atheists in our circles would agree that there's something that's been lost that is um, ineffable at the very least, like something that we can't touch and totally explain, but which nevertheless exists and ought to be honored, even in our inability to describe it. Does that make any sense, Grant? I don't know. Yeah, it does. And I, I think that, that that's what people are going to go looking for. Um, I think because there's there's demand for it, people want to see that. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that there's going to be a way through. I think that if people focus on doing new new stuff that's dope, I think we're going to be in a good position. Um, if Harrison's right that this was Ren's way of kind of chastising some of the people that constantly you know, are, are fixated upon, you know, return with the V instead of the U. Uh, that shit pisses me off, man. I'm gonna be honest with you. Like, there's no going back. That's dumb. You know, let's focus on finding a way ahead. You know, by all means, learn lessons from, from you know, great stuff in the past and, and try and apply what you can. But yeah, Harrison. Mm -hmm. Well, so that brings me back to what I said at the beginning of our discussion here, reading Turchin's book, 
it's one of the points because because this applies also in the in the political realm and to the political theorists that are around you know um proposing all kinds of of ways to go forward like the new system well well we should like the kind of like the neo-reactionaries who who want like a, a literal return to or, or some of them at least a literal return to kind of like absolute autocracy and um like some things just won't be possible and this is this is a point that i think that ren gets to just in those first couple paragraphs and maybe a, a bit further in the article is that that's not the way the world works so this is something that that's not the way societies or humans work um you can go back and you can find principles and maybe find ways to apply them in the future but it's not going to work out the way that you think it will probably and the the examples that Turchin gives is that in the in the context of of large-scale societies that there is a, a very a very strong like law of continuity that the overall the shape of this the overall shape of the system is going to persist unless the unless the society totally like gets disintegrated and like just totally falls apart and is exterminated or um gets incorporated and like defeated and incorporated by some other state and just kind of like loses itself completely if that doesn't happen the the form will continue on and he gives the examples of egypt which has been uh, a militocracy for 800 years and no matter what happens it just keeps going to militocracy because that's the established form it would be very very difficult to to implement any other type of system in egypt in china it's been a a bureaucracy like a, a literal like political bureaucracy for 2000 years or more and um what were some of the other examples he gives a few other examples, but well, West, that, that Western and what, what Western countries have have been uh, sort of like military republics um, mm -hmm. or monarchies, uh, but with strongly republican attributes. Uh, right. Again, for pretty much like you know the entire like breadth of Indo-European history, um, mm -hmm. which is so. You if know, you think you're going to replace why that, the, why, why the plutocracy, why, why the current plutocracy in the U.S. feels so awkward for everyone it's just like everyone kind of has this it's like oh like this doesn't feel natural you know um and it can't so they you know they can try to impose something different but yeah yeah i think uh what you're kind of getting at there is it's probably not going to last very long. um expand on that what's not going to last long like this uh the kind of cultural revolution that they are trying oh, okay, to yeah, impose yeah. this uh yeah. is sort of like you know um Plato's Republic, you know, the, uh, the this ant-like communism that they're, they're trying to turn everything into. It's like, it, it doesn't match the temperament of the people uh, going back a very long time here or in most other countries for that matter. Um, and it also yeah. doesn't match the one true story. Nobody ends up as the master of both worlds. So they end up as a slave of both. Yeah. You yeah. know, it is the anti-story. Yeah, another another um, essay from last week, I think, which is worth mentioning as relevant here is Jeff Russell's uh, discussion of authenticity versus validity, because that kind of touches directly on this question of, you know, return to be right. Um, this tendency to think that oh, if we just blindly follow the rituals of the past without really understanding them but we just follow the forms um 
then that will bring the past back. And, you know, the point he made there, he tried doing that in his own magical practice and it did not work. You know, he had to instead really believe and then start experimenting with something that was not authentic in any historical sense, but that actually ended up, uh, in his opinion, being far more valid um, by sort of like- Yeah, because it was, it, was a, it was a cargo <laughs> cult before, yeah. Sorry. Exactly, exactly. And instead, like, you know, he found that it was more effective to sort of like take those elements that worked from tradition and then incorporate them in something that matched his actual conditions and experiences. And I think that's kind of what Ren was kind of getting at, you know, like not, not don't try to ape the past, like certainly look to it for inspiration, take everything you can from it, but don't be trapped by it don't just kind of like robotically follow the forms you know don't robotically reject everything modern absolutely modern he's, stuff he's right old. about that yeah. i mean i'm going to write a story about the tonic seven we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take down skynet blah 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 you know i'll be the guy in um what's the name of that movie with schwarzenegger running man I'll be the nerd that gets taken down by the lightning man in the tunnel as I'm given the code. To, the, these stories write themselves. Like, in other words, all I'm saying is that if we're going to write, like, I don't know if Tacitus is the right example. Like, I, I understand what, I, and I don't know that, I haven't read that much. And I'm one of those guys. I can't read natural Greek. I don't get the sense that Ren has a deeply literary background i think his from reading his stuff before i think he has a pretty strong background in classics on the one hand and uh sort of health and fitness on the other those are the two kind of subjects that he kind of he kind of goes between so yeah yeah i mean you say I, it's great i don't even disagree with him my only my only problem with it is i wasn't really sure and you guys have actually helped quite a bit to make me to clarify for me what he was getting at and i think i agree with some amalgam of what you're all saying and i agree with him therefore it's just sort of like well no don't go back and larp don't don't be chat gpt of like third century ad or something <laughs> something like that like don't be the generative you know uh, bullshitters that are like reaching back into the past and altering something slightly and saying hey it's original and also we've look we've revived the past no i agree with that that's not going to fucking happen but like, um, but I, at the same time, I don't want to abandon everything. You know, the Greek monsters mean something to me. And even though I will stylize them differently, I know that the spirit of those creatures is the same. The spirit of those dangers is similar. It's just that, you know, I need to find my own voice. And like H.P. Lovecraft, uh, or I should say, I'm sorry, zero H.P. Lovecraft would be an example of, and I didn't use, I didn't mention them or her or whatever it is. I, I didn't mention um, by name in my Black Speech of Mortar, but I think that work was on my mind a bit, if that makes any sense. And it doesn't, it's not a criticism. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to don't Sorry, which, what, which work? By Zero HP Lovecraft? Um, Zero HP Lovecraft, yeah. I think that's he uses, a, that's, that's wields, definitely a him. Well, he wields the Black Speech and he wields it well. And, 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 I, and I just think that, each one of us as an author is going to try to find our own way. And I'm not, I'm not disparaging him for finding his way in that, if that makes any sense. What I'm saying is I'm just sort of like each one of us 
is going to have to find our way to to tell the kind of stories that will, if not great, good. And like maybe that's what he's saying too. It's like good enough for the time. Um, mm-hmm. But like, and I would not call zero HP Lovecraft's work great. I don't think anybody would. It's good. Um, and it's also dangerous in my opinion, but that's for him to work out and for me to work out. You know what I mean? Well, he, he describes right. himself as a horrorist, of course, right? Um, just like H.P. Lovecraft was. And, you know, the thing with H.P. Lovecraft, you, as a stylist, the man is amazing. His imagination was incredibly rich. You can get a huge amount of insight into Western culture by reading H.P. Lovecraft because he's sort of delving into the deep subconscious fears that were unlocked by the age of reason. Um, one should probably not look to him for spiritual advice, however. You know, uh, the, the cosmos that he is, um, he, is, he, he is illustrating is sort of the spiritualized version of Bertrand Russell's, uh, you know, uh, wor- a worldview built on a, a foundation of unyielding despair, you know, um, yeah. which, I, which I think is not actually accurate in the, in, in the highest possible analysis. I don't think the world really is that way, right? Um, I think Tolkien's worldview or C.S. Lewis's worldview is ultimately far more, uh, far, far closer to reality. If not, that at least psychological. Um, well, Lovecraft was like, I would say if somebody said, who's the purest horror writer it would be it would be Lovecraft or possibly or possibly Cormac McCarthy because I think I've worked if I think about Blood Meridian I think about that as a work of essentially pure horror um even though it's of the somewhat mundane kind and I only will give the qualifier somewhat but H.P. Lovecraft absolutely was on that line he was there at the veil he was staring deep into the face of the enemy and he was recording it and like, and he was not, he was not, he found no comedy behind it, which I think um, was kind well, much, of much. It's very, very, very similar to Nietzsche in a sense, right? You know, he Correct. confronted the, he confronted the darkness that lurks at the heart of the modern Western mind. And he looked at it without any filter, you know, uh, and you know, Nietzsche's case, was, like that, he, drove, that drove him mad, ultimately. You know, he, he, he stared, he well, stared well, it, too it, long into the abyss, and the abyss stared back. Um, as both both men, both men, I think that's true. And it's yeah. sort of like, that's what happens well, they, when they, you're... Lovecraft, Lovecraft died young, did he not? Uh, quite young. Um, I mean, a lot of those, a, a lot of those pulp writers did, but uh, yeah. Um, that's, that's the danger of being a reporter in hell. Yes. You know, uh, and s- same thing yeah. with Jack Parsons, by the way, I might add. Yes. You know, if you were, if you were correspondent in hell, you're going to have a very short life and a very um, interesting death. Yeah. I would, I would say yeah, Jack Parsons, say what you will, he had a very interesting life. <laughs> short, but very eventful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he declared himself the Antichrist. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's one hell of an interesting life. <laughs> All right, guys. Do we want uh, anything to wrap up on uh, 
on Ren or any final thoughts on on, on this discussion? My my, my only final day. thought is that to any any writers out there who are who are listening to this, um, you know, you should certainly read that article if you haven't, and let that and this discussion uh, inspire you to experiment with your style and your subject matter, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, play around. Let's let's try to do something new. And then if you're on Substack, then uh, just drop a link in John's comments and uh, maybe he'll put you in the next roundup, right? You never know. All right. So we'll see you next week, everyone. This has been another tonic discussion. And uh, yeah, we'll be back for another interesting conversation on an as yet unknown topic. So tune in. Bye-bye.